Amen. Thank you so much, Bonnie and Linda. You are spectacular. really are. We should just give them a hand because of how wonderful they are. <laughs> they really are. I'm, I'm so thankful for them. Um, Alrighty, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Isaiah chapter 13. If you do not have your Bible, it'll be behind me on the screen. And again, I'm reading from the ESV as I read. Um, Alright, so it's actually been a few weeks because we had, uh, we had our community Bible service. I was not here the one week, and then we also had question and answers last week. Um, so... What, where are we at in Isaiah, right? We're in, we're in Isaiah chapter 13. Uh, last week we went over, or last three weeks ago, we went over Isaiah 12 and we talked about how um, despite all the judgment that's going to be poured out on the people of God, in the end he's still going to have a remnant and that's going to cause the people to rejoice in song over the fact that they are redeemed by this God who is so mighty and so vast and so powerful. Um, and so now though, we're going to, and that was a good closer in a way from Isaiah chapter six to 12. It's kind of like this, this bookend in a way that kind of describes what's happening. Now Isaiah is going to get into other things. He's going to get into other nations and the judgments which are going to fall on those around um, Israel at the time. And so, uh, and just as a reflection too, because we're going to be getting into other nations, the majority of our discussion has been about Israel, Judah, um, and Syria, and Assyria. Now, Assyria, again, is the major power at the time, and Assyria is going to be the one that in 722 takes over the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, and then they're gone, um, whereas Judah will remain. The one that comes after them, though, is Babylon. And Babylon overtakes Assyria and becomes the major power for a number of years until they're defeated by the Persians, and then Alexander the Great comes in Greece, and then you have the Romans. Um, but that's a long time away. Right now, we're going to be talking about Babylon, and Babylon at this point is not a major power, as we'll see, but um, yeah, so that's, that's history. <laughs> Here we go. If that was clear, it was probably clear as mud, right? I'm sorry. Here we go. And Betsy is recording. All right, so 13 verses 1 through 6. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, on a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalted ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. So now we have a new oracle against a pagan kingdom. Babylon comes into focus for Isaiah. Some speculate about this since the Assyrian threat was still very clear in Isaiah's lifetime. Meanwhile, Babylon would not become a true threat to Judah for almost 100 years after Isaiah had um, passed away. Still, two things can account for this. The first is God's knowledge bestowed upon Isaiah concerning the future of Babylon. The second is Isaiah could easily have recognized Babylon while not yet an empire as it would become, was still an example of pride, which is still to be critiqued. Still, we see how the oracle begins by depicting a call to arms. The fact that it was on a bare hill recognizes that this is an easily seen location for those who need to see it to make ready for battle. We see how it is God who commands them, the Babylonians and proud, and as such, God will humble them with his great army. 
The portrayal of the army coming in is as a great multitude. The sound of it is loud on the mountains. Indeed, not just any army, but one of nations gathering together. There is only one who is sovereign over all the nations, and that is the Lord. He is the one who brings them to call um, and arms them for his purposes. As such, the prophet describes them as coming from the farthest reaches as described as the distant land and the end of the heavens. The nations are described as God's weapons, and he will utilize them for his judgment against people. What more can be done other than to wail at the coming day of the Lord? Uh, The destruction is not only from the nations coming against Babylon, but it is God himself in the end. He is the one who is in control and brings this judgment on the people of Babylon. So now we come to verse 7. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of its fierce anger, of his fierce anger. Indeed, a wailing will be with the people and that is all that they will be able to muster against the army coming against them. Instead of being able to grip their weapons and instead of having courage, they will be unable to grasp their weapons or find the moral, to, uh, the morale to stand against the onslaught The people will now face the reality of their choices. They will recognize they should have trusted in God. They should have recognized his hand was moving them all along. It was not their own strength, their might, or their wisdom. No, it was God who caused them to become great. The realization of this is what causes them to be as a woman in labor. The pains of labor are necessary. But once they occur, there is no way to stop it. So it is with the judgment which comes upon them. They recognize it for what it is, but are powerless to stand against it. The day of the Lord is upon them, and as it does, it is cruel, wrathful, and fierce in anger. This should not surprise us. God is not happy with sinners. Sin misses the mark by definition, and it corrupts all that it touches. Thus the land must be purged of the sinfulness of the people. There may be two thoughts concerning the stars and the constellations no longer giving light. The first thought is how the stars are a reflection of God's light, as we learn God is light from the Bible. Therefore, light is a blessing. Darkness then shows God's blessing has been taken away. The second thought may be of ancient pantheons. Um, The ancients often associated nature with deities, and thus this may represent God showing once and for all that such idolatry and lesser gods are inadequate in comparison to himself. None compares to God who created all things. Um, I'll leave you to decide which one you like more. Um, Or you can prefer both. Why not? Verse 11 describes the reason for the judgment. Evil, iniquity, arrogance, and the ruthless proud. Whenever humanity seeks to exalt itself above God, God, um, it leads to evil. 
As such, God will bring judgment on the people because of their arrogance. They believe that they can live without God. They believe that they are their own masters. But the truth is there is only one sovereign and that is God. Any other source of power is truly inadequate in comparison to God. Indeed, by placing themselves above God, it leads to this judgment against them. Why? Because there is no foundation for goodness apart from God. Thus, any kind of lifestyle, any morality, any form of justice that they come up with will ultimately be inadequate and worthy of judgment. Human pride always leads to such devastation. Now we come to verses 14 through 18. And like a hunted gazelle, and like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. Um, And darker. Now we come to the repercussions or the results of the judgment. The people, they're without leadership. And having none, they are no different than wild animals running to and fro. Or like sheep without a shepherd. As such, they will return to where they came from. Those who are found will be destroyed. The horror of it is found in everything about their society will crumble. Their children, their wives, their belongings, all of it will be taken away. The fact that the Medes are here mentioned is interesting. It was the Mede-Persian Empire which ended up being the destruction of the Babylonian Empire around 536 BC. The Medes in particular were known for their ruthlessness. Even this far in advance, Isaiah recognized them for what they were. They didn't care about wealth. They only cared about violence and destruction. Such a judgment will be brought upon the Babylonians because of their pride. Um, And as a second thought too, when it comes to, let's say, the children being uh, destroyed, that shows that they have no future. Children are the future. And if you don't have, as a society, children, then there is no future for that society as a whole. But if the society itself does, then there is a future. Um, it's It's a really... Powerful statement. Now we come to the end of the chapter. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pinch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell. And their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in the towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. The result of this judgment against the Babylonians is similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as God ended these cities because of their immorality, so it will be with the Babylonians. Apart from the wandering shepherds, there will be none who remain there to live. Instead, what was once a society which was great will become wild and untamed. The animals will live where once there were so many people. The houses will be filled with animals rather than human inhabitants. Wild nature will overtake that which was once cultivated beautifully by humanity. This imagery is similar to what we found earlier in Isaiah concerning the vineyard that produced wild grapes. Eventually, that which was cultivated and domesticated returned to an untamed, uninhabitable place. 
in the end, uh, the time is coming. It will not take long for the day of the Lord to come against these people. Indeed, Isaiah prophesied in the 7th century. It would be approximately 150 years for all of these things to occur with Babylon. Which, in the grand scheme of things, is not that long. So, that leads us to the main point. The main point of these verses are to show the result of human pride and arrogance. While the Assyrians were a menace in their own right, their pride would be soon diminished. While the Babylonians, they continued to rise. Just as the Assyrians, though, would face their judgment for their pride, so too would the Babylonians in their due time. All right. So in today's text, we see how Babylon will be judged. While we have already noted that at this time of Isaiah's prophecy, Babylon had not yet reached its peak power, it still had been known for many hundreds of years as significant as a city-state. In time, it became one of the great ancient powers of the world, and it was through them that God would eventually exile the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BC. Still, the Babylonians were a people of a certain kind of glory, power, and prestige. But what we notice about the Babylonians is that though they were a great force and though they were to conquer many peoples, in the end their power was nothing in comparison to God's own power. Though God would use them as a means for judgment, that does not negate their own responsibility to recognize God as God rather than themselves as the ultimate power of the universe. Thus the judgment comes down against them because of this. And it is indeed the first lesson we learn about God in Isaiah. It is a gentle reminder to us here and now that God is not unaware of the atrocities and the immorality of the nations. He is the ultimate judge of all the earth, of all the kingdoms, of, of all the sovereigns, and of all peoples. He is always in control and no human power or spiritual power is greater than he. This is one of the significant truths, again, we have encountered thus far in Isaiah. Over and over again, Isaiah is reminding the people that God is the one who is enthroned above all. If God is on their side, what have they to fear? If God is against them, then woe to those whom he is against. For nothing could keep God's judgment from coming against a people if he has chosen to bring judgment against them. Just as we have seen previously then, this should give us pause. The truth is we live in a nation which is a global power. It can be very often the case that we can trust and rely in our nation to overcome all odds because we are able to witness our incredible power. I mean, you think of the nuclear bombs, you think of um, the triad, you think of all these things that we have, all these powerful weapons that can defend. Yet we need to be cautious. We remember what the Proverbs say, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If the coronavirus has shown us anything, it is that we humans are fickle and fallible people. Despite all the greatness which we are able to attain, despite all the prestige we are able to muster, in the end, we are all just a breath of air. All of humanity, our societies, our governments, and the structures we build can come crashing down around us. We are blessed, it's true. But if we should take our eyes off the one who blesses, then it will lead to our own destruction. This is what happened with the Babylonians. And we should always take heed of it happening with the nation which we live. The more we take out the foundation for our society, the more likely that society will crumble to the ground. If we should take God away from the foundation, then what is left 
for a foundation other than sinking sand. The only power and wisdom we could possess would come from our finite selves. And as we have seen, in comparison with the power and the wisdom of God, our own is insignificant and a minor thing. The same can be true of our congregations, though. In the New Testament, we are constantly reminded to be on guard in our faith, to never take God's grace of our faith for granted. We saw a few weeks ago how this was the case in Romans 10, but we also remember what we read in Hebrews 3:12 through 19. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Faith will quell the rebellious heart. But the faith we need to have is in what is true and not a figment of our imaginations. We know the truth, for the truth is Christ. If we should be led away from the truth of the gospel of Christ and allow ourselves to be deceived, we will be no different than any pagan nation just within our congregations. Instead of humility, we will find pride. Pride in our own abilities rather than the pride in God who has made himself known through his word. Be on guard then for this pride. Pride is the oldest of sins. And it is the one which is most insidious. It is the one which would cause us to focus greatly on ourselves, to trust in ourselves, to rely on ourselves, and to believe supremely in ourselves. But the truth is, we are but a breath of air, here today and gone tomorrow. We are finite and we are broken by sin. As Christians then, let us take warning from the judgment against the Babylonians. Let us not rely on ourselves and our power, but rely on the power of God. Indeed, let us remember what was written to us in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the wonderful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We recognize that Christ is God and that he came in humility to save us from our sin and the judgment against sin, which is death. In his humility has come the great light for us. So it is with our own lives now. Living in humility, recognizing God is God and we are not, will lead to life. Seeking God's will is what will lead to our greatest pride. But the only way to attain it is to let go of ourselves, to cling to God. Christ, he taught this specifically when he said, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move 
them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries abroad and their fingers long, fringers long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And it's interesting. In First Peter, Peter says the exact same thing. And he, needs to, he was one who needed to remember that, right? Thus in Christ, we have the reverse of what we've come to expect in this world. The world says the more you have, the more you do, the more you focus on yourself, it will lead to your greatest accomplishment. Christ says, nay, humble yourself and only then will you be exalted. Let us then be the shining light of humility in a prideful world. Let us not forget that it is God and God alone who is seated above all. Let us never allow ourselves to boast in anything other than the power of God himself. And let us never seek anything or any way or any one which will lead us away from his glory. For pride will be our destruction, just as it has been for all of humanity. But there is salvation from pride in Christ, the perfect, humble servant of his Father, and through whom we find our own source of humility. Now all this leads to the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation for all of our lives. Every single thing in life can come down to the gospel of Jesus. And the truth is that the gospel of Christ, it begins with our origins. All the world, the cosmos, has been created by God. He is the first cause of all things. Before anything there was, was God. And he created the world. He created all that we see. And it's a wonderful foundation for all of reality. Is that God did it. He is the first cause. But what did he make last? He made us. Humanity to bear his image. That through him, we would be able to have reason. We would be able to love and have affection. So we'd have these bodies which can glorify him. And this is a wonderful thing. Because that means that all humans, no matter who you are, male or female... No matter your race, you are made in the image of God. You have dignity, sanctity, and worth to life because you are made in God's image. The world will tell you that you're stardust. The world will say that that's all you are. Descended from billions of years of chance. Well, if that's true, then you mean nothing. But if it's true that God exists, you mean something far more than even stars. Now the problem happens with the fall. And this is what we see in today's text especially. We see pride. We see arrogance. We see a haughtiness to the people. I can do all things by myself. And the Babylonians, they conquered so much, but they were unable to see that it was God who blessed them to be able to conquer. That they were just tools for God to judge other people. And the fall is what causes our downfall. Sin, pride, greed. The fact that we lie to one another, we hate one another, we're willing to destroy people just for our own personal gains. We're willing to murder those who disagree with us 
We're willing to kill just for the sake of someone who looks different than us. We're willing to do all these terrible things to one another. Why? Because we're sinners. And what can be left for such a people as us who have so much blood on our hands other than to cast us into a dark abyss? And that's the problem. We are worthy of judgment, every single one of us. We have all failed. We have all totally failed God and each other. And we are broken, so deeply broken. So what can be done? People will say again, we can rise up on our own. Humanism, woo! But where has humanism left us? World War I and World War II, Nazi Germany, Pal Pal. You have generals um, Mao in China. Hundreds of millions dead for the sake of ideas, ideology, ideologies. Doesn't lead to anything good. We can't do it on our own is the point. We can't rise above on our own. But thanks be to God that he sent away through redemption through Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection in time, space, history, and flesh we can be redeemed. Through his... Thanks, Buds. <laughs> Everyone awake? Um, through his life, death, and resurrection, we are redeemed. It's not by what we do. It's by what he has done. And our faith in him is what leads us to redemption. And through him, we are able to receive the spirit of God who commands our lives, who gives us a reason to live, who we walk in step with. And when we walk in step with, all that greed, all that hatred leaves us. And we're able to walk with our God finally. And it's through Jesus that this is uh, able to be done. And the question is, where does God lead us to? It's leading us to glory. When we will experience our God forevermore in his grace and his peace. And we'll be able to see him face to face without any sin to hold us down. And finally we'll understand. Finally we'll be able to breathe again. Finally the weight of the world will be off our shoulders. If we have faith. If we don't, though, we'll be as judged as the Babylonians. Place your faith in Christ, then. He is the ultimate foundation, and it's on him all the world rests. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the oracles against the Babylonians, because it reminds us, Lord, that we are no different. We are no different than any of the other nations who existed long before we came into existence. We, too, are filled with pride. And so, Lord, we ask that you would grant us humility, that we would look at Christ who humbled himself, who came in flesh, who was God, but who was willing to die on a cross so that we might be saved. We ask, Lord, that the ultimate source of humility would be implanted on our brains and our hearts and that we would desire to honor the God who saves us from our sins. And we ask, Lord, that the pride which we have would be taken away and humility would be in its place. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.